0: <clears throat> we'll jump into the scriptures in just a moment here. Today is going to be um, a little different for those of you who are regularly here. Uh, you know I like to sort of focus on one particular section of scripture and sort of illuminate it from, from other parts of scripture. Um, but today we're going to take kind of a big picture view of a whole bunch of text here from 8.1 to 10.18. So uh, we'll be doing that today. I want to ask you a question. I know my, my answer to this question. Aren't you glad we don't live back in the old days where things were much harder? I, I know that I am. Back, you know, when kids actually walked to school. Do you remember that? Anybody here remember that? <laughs> and I walked to school, people. I walked to school every day a few miles. My parents didn't pick me up until I was, well... A senior in high school, and at that point, my mom was driving this cheesy old 60-something. I graduated high school in '91, people, so it's 1990, and my mom is driving up in this old 64-year, uh, 60-year was 1964, was this thing we called Bess, old Bessie, and it still had the, the, the gears you changed by pushing buttons. So it wasn't until my senior year when my mom came to pick me up in old Bessie, and I thought, really, I'd just rather walk. <laughs> That was back in the days when kids had to invent their own (laughs) games. Or or how about this? Just take our food as an example. I don't have to, and Lord knows this is a good thing, I don't have to raise, feed, kill, pluck, boil, and cook my own chicken. Amen? (laughs) I just go to Zaxby's. (laughs) If I had to do all that stuff like they used to back in the days, I would probably starve. Or think about traveling. There was a time when going to Johnson City probably took two full days on a horse-drawn carriage. I can get there now in 40 minutes if I'm driving by the law, 35 if by grace. Sermon prep. Sermon prep means that right here on my iPad and on my phone, I have a good 100,000, literally 100,000 sermon illustrations at my disposal whenever I need them. When I first started in ministry, they would tell us all in seminary about the importance of of creating a meaningful filing system. I'd just take them all and put them in one big folder and search. I remember the ancient history of ten years ago or so when my dad and Charles Reese, my predecessor, had five filing cabinets full of sermons and of illustrations. Now the problem is we have too much information, too many options, too many good ideas, Some of you are thinking that hasn't really translated into better preaching yet, Scott, but I'm glad you think that. (laughs) Anyway, the long story short is I am glad that I live in the present day where things seem so much easier. And I was thinking about that this week as it relates to our Christian lives. Even for us as Christians, things seems so much easier. I mean, just think about it. Can you imagine living in the Old Testament under that impossible weight of the Old Testament law? Can you imagine having to bring the blood of bulls and goats to the temple to sacrifice? I mean, we have this, as we say, we have this freedom in Christ that means we don't have to make sacrifices anymore to make ourselves pure. As New Testament Christians, we think to ourselves, in this day and age, what a blessing that we have it so much easier. Well, those things are true. But I have to admit something to you here. I've sort of set you up. I've sort of set you up because I want you to think with me for a moment. I want you to think with me for a moment about the New Testament and what it says about the requirements of the law. For those taking notes, here's a brief definition for how we're going to use the word law today. A brief definition for our, the use of the word law today. The law is simply this. God's standard of perfection. God's standard of perfection. And we think in, in our sophisticated post-cross kind of world where we live as Christians, we think, man, I am so glad that I don't have to do what they used to have to do. We think that. We feel that way. We consider ourselves sophisticated and beyond beyond all that old stuff. But think with me for a moment about what the New Testament says about the requirements of the law. I want to ask you this question. Is it really easier for us nowadays as Christians than it was for the Jews? Just listen to the words of Jesus. In just the book of Matthew on this question of the requirements of the law, Matthew five, twenty to twenty two says this. This is Jesus speaking. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. He goes on to say, You've heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Matthew five twenty seven to 28 say this. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. In Matthew five, thirty-eight and 9, he's, he says, You've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. These are becoming harder, it seems. Matthew 7 says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Matthew 12 says, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be judged, by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. He sums all this kind of thought up. In Matthew 5.48, he's quoting a few places that are in Leviticus especially. And as a way to sum up God's standard that is set forth in the law, Jesus himself says, Matthew 5.48, You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. How are you going to attain this kind of perfection. Jesus comes along and he says, it's still required to be perfect. He says you are required to live up to the whole law because the law comes from the character and the nature of God himself. So so what's your program for that? What's your plan? What is your plan for attaining to the standard of God's perfect character and nature? At this point, I'm thinking, and you're probably thinking something like this and feeling the same way. You know, blood from a bull and a goat doesn't sound too bad, does it? I mean, what's really going on is that Jesus comes along, and if you're taking notes, this would be a good thing to write down. He comes along and he makes explicit in the New Testament what is implicit in the Old Testament. He makes obvious for us what is a bit of a mystery and hidden and latent in the Old Testament. He makes explicit in the Old Testament what is implicit in the Old Testament. He says, listen, you still haven't heard me yet. I do not just want your bulls and your goats. I do not want your empty worship. I do not want resounding gongs and clanging cymbals. He says, I have always wanted, even demanded and still demand, everything. He says, I don't want your outward show. I want your heart. So it turns out that the standard of perfection that is set forth by the law which comes from God's character and his nature, is still required. In fact, absolute perfection is demanded by a God of holiness, about whom the reality of which is infinitely greater than our greatest thoughts. It is impossible to be in the presence of a holy God without absolute, total, moral purity and perfection. No hint of sin or unrighteousness can be present if you and I are to have a relationship with God. That standard still applies now. So, how you doing? How you doing with that standard of perfection? Any takers today want to claim that kind of standard in their own lives? Of course not. I can't meet that standard. And neither can you. So we're in this weird place as Christians where we ask this kind of question. What do we do in response to this kind of impossible situation? Well, we do what any good Christian or group of Christians likes to do. Just like the Hebrew Christians were doing. We make our own rules. We set up our own rules by which we establish a guise of spiritual adequacy that makes us feel good, despite what we know about our sinful behavior. As a sort of sedative to numb the pain instead of pursuing treatment to cure the condition, we hold on to our own replacement system where instead of living in the Spirit and allowing Christ's atoning sacrifice to be enough, get this, we create ways to establish our own righteousness, to measure our own spiritual fitness. We all know that score with one another. Don't think we don't all know that score with one another. We know going into most every church in America what the score is and how we measure spiritual fitness and the words that we have to use so that people think that we're right with God. Don't tell me you don't know those things. We've intuited them, those of us who've been in the church, from day one. And that is living in what Hebrews 9.14 calls dead works. Turn to Hebrews 9.14 for just a moment. This beautiful verse in Hebrews 9.14. You know, we've come a long way in Hebrews, and and we can't recount all those things today, but chapters 8 and 9 summarize a lot of that. And they say this. He comes to Hebrews 9.14, and he says, How much more? How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, how much more will the blood of Christ purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? What are dead works? What are dead works? Dead works are what happen when we seek to establish our own righteousness. Dead works are what we do apart from God's Spirit in our lives. And a lot of things that we Christians say, and the things that make up proper Christian living can even become dead works because God's not in it. Prayer can be your dead work. Bible reading can be a dead work. Preaching, sacrificial deeds singing songs with nice lyrics, regular church attendance, giving financially, teaching a Sunday school class, leading a ministry team, serving in ministry. My service can be a dead work. If we act on the outside in a manner that gives the lie to the reality of inner death, If we are whitewashed tombs, then we are engaged in dead works that clog the life of the Spirit's work to renew the image of God in us. Let me say that again. It's long, it's complicated, but it's extremely important. If we are to move on, unlike the Hebrew Christians... If we are to move on and let the Spirit work in us to make us into who He's called us to be. If we act on the outside in a manner that gives a lie to the reality of the death and destruction that is within, if we are whitewashed tombs, then we are engaged in dead works that clog the life of the Spirit's work to renew us. Anything. Anything can be a dead work if the Lord is not in it. So here's the rub. Dead works are the demonstration that we don't really trust the gospel. Dead works are the demonstration that we don't really trust the gospel. Oh, we put, we put trust and faith in this sort of heady intellectual, I believe this and this kind of way. We all have known that and said that. But have we trusted it such that we live out of that place? Our churches are filled with people who struggle with trusting more in dead works than they realize and then they do of the Spirit's work in us. Oswald Chambers says, Believe me, the curse of the saint is his goodness. The problem with many of us is not that we are too disillusioned with ourselves, too disillusioned with our sinfulness, but it is that we are not disillusioned enough. When we realized our need for Christ's atoning sacrifice on our behalf, we gave up all rights to ourselves. Romans 6 says, We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be ensnared or enslaved by sin. Ephesians 4 and Colossians 3 speak of putting to death, putting off that old self. 1 Peter 3.18, in keeping with Hebrews, says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. The problem for many of us is that we still have not gone to our own funerals. We are so sure we are owners of our own lives. And it's only by the conviction of the Holy Spirit in our hearts Only by the power of the Holy Spirit can some good Christians go to their own funerals so that, as Hebrews says, so that their lives can be broken and ruined enough that Christ will truly take residence in their heart. Because if you haven't been to your own funeral, you are still in charge of your own heart. Your claim to yourself is still there. This was exactly the problem here in Hebrews. They weren't living out of the truth that God didn't ever want what Jesus called filthy rags of outward righteousness. He always knew that wouldn't work. He wants everything. Outward was just the beginning. He wants total transformation. He wants their hearts, out of which, when empowered by the Holy Spirit, outward righteousness naturally results. He wants our hearts, out of which, empowered by the Holy Spirit, outward righteousness is the natural result. You can't make it happen by yourself. You can try. We've all tried. It doesn't take long to get to the end of that road. This is about, as Hebrews says, the transformation of the inner life. Turn with me to Hebrews 8, 8 through 12, for just a second here. Hebrews 8, 8 to 12. This is a quote from Jeremiah 31, Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34, and it shows us that dead works didn't work, and God knew that they wouldn't, so he accounted for our weakness with his own strength and changed how we relate to him in the new covenant. The law is the same, but the covenant, our relationship to the law, is different. The requirement's the same, but the meeting of those requirements and how we do that is different. This quote from Jeremiah 31 here is the only place in the Old Testament where the New Covenant, as a term, is used explicitly. And it sets the background for this whole section in Hebrews 8 to 10. It's quoted in chapter 8 here, and it's midway through chapter 10 also. It sets the tone. This is what it says. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. Verse 10, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people and they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother saying know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest for I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. The law didn't change in its requirements, the covenant, and the relationship to it did. So God told them, verse 10, that under the new terms of this relationship with Him, that He will put His law into their minds and and He will write His laws on their hearts. And that is how He will be our God and we shall be His people. Now, do you realize just a, a smidge of how incredibly revolutionary that idea was for them? There is no way you come along and you say that to the Jews. They would fight you to the death. People were stoned for much lesser things. And Jesus, the first revolutionary, comes along and says, it's in here, it's in my mind, and it's in my the laws in my body. That's the cry of Hebrews over and over. It's why Hebrews says over and over, and especially in our passage in four different places, that Jesus is our great high priest once and for all. And here's the crazy part. Jesus kept the law perfectly first on our behalf by the power of the Holy Spirit and enables us now to do the same. Not on our own strength, not by the flesh, but as we are empowered through His Spirit. Listen to this because it's an amazing truth. When we obey the Holy Spirit... We are enabled because we are empowered by that same spirit that empowered Jesus in this life. We are enabled to fulfill the new terms of the law because God has placed his truth in us. Don't believe me? Turn to Romans 8, 3 and 4. Romans 8, 3 and 4. says this, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His Son, His own Son, in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. Now get this, verse 4. He did this in order that the righteous requirement of the law, this is the crazy part, might be fulfilled in us who walk... Not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. That's why Romans later on in, uh, in, in chapter 7 says, we serve in the new way of the Spirit, and not in the old way of the written code. So the crazy part here is that we, you and I, we become the living, breathing demonstration of God's work through His Son. When we live and when we serve, according to the Spirit. Live and serve. Important phrase, according to the Spirit. Not what I tell you. Not what somebody else tells you. Not what our expectations and church culture tells you. Jesus Christ's Holy Spirit transcends anything any of us could ever say is demanded of us unless it's according to the Spirit. So, when we don't live and serve according to the Spirit, we miss the truth of this last verse in our section. We miss the truth when we don't do this of Hebrews ten eighteen. It says this, Where there is forgiveness of these, that is sins, there is no longer any offering for sin. In other words, Stop acting like dead works work. Stop pretending and acting like Jesus can't handle your sin. Stop holding up systems of self righteous measure that have nothing to do with the core of the gospel message. And part of that, part of that core gospel message that we seem to fail to realize is that there will never, ever be anyone anywhere in all of history offering another sacrifice for sin that works. It won't happen. No other sacrifice for sin that works will ever happen. Because it's already fully and finally happened in Jesus Christ. So stop doing it yourself. You can never, ever, ever come infinitely close to doing it in your flesh by your own vain strivings. So stop the charade. Jesus calls us new creatures new creations, when we as new creatures who are animated by His Spirit, when we act out of what Hebrews calls dead works, when we act out of dead works, we are like people with spiritual phantom limb syndrome. A phantom limb as many of you know, is the sensation that an, an amputated or a missing limb or even an organ, it's the sensation that it is still attached to the body and is moving appropriately with other body parts. A large majority of adult individuals with an amputation experience phantom sensations in their amputated limb. And the crazy part is, the majority of those sensations are actually painful. In other words, it's gone, but you still feel like it's there. Friends, because we have a great high priest who has gone beyond the veil for us, the sin has once for all been sacrificed for and yet we strive and we work as if it's dependent upon us the wonderful gracious message of the cross is that it isn't it wasn't it can't be and it won't be dependent upon you and for that we give god thanks for that We give Him praise and glory that are due to Him alone. Because He is the only sufficient atonement to make up for your sin, your problems, your frustration, your failings, your circumstances. Anything and everything we ever do cannot ever begin to make up for any of those things. So thanks be to God that we serve a great high priest. Let's pray. Lord, Scripture tells us that one day we will lay aside our crowns knowing that You are the only only one fit to wear those crowns. Lord, there are parts of our past that are hard to let go of. And we work, and we move, and we emote, and we live out of those kinds of memories, vainly striving to measure ourselves and be adequate in ways that don't work. So Lord, we ask again, like your followers have for century after century after century, Father, implant your word, your law, in our hearts and in our minds, that we might become the people who are empowered and animated by your Holy Spirit, and not the dead works and the vain strivings we set those aside and we ask for your grace and your mercy to be afresh for us again because of what you've accomplished in the cross for us. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.